seated. Good morning. Good morning. You'll find the uh, insert in the bulletin. There we go. Um, now, last week we took a pause from our study of the Gospel of Luke to begin a two-part study of a doctrine of work and a doctrine of rest. Work and rest. In part, we did this pause so that um, the, the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas, we could be studying through Luke chapter 2, and also because Thanksgiving is, is seasonally, traditionally, it's a, it's a harvest. We've worked hard, we've brought in the harvest, there's a rest now, let's, let's feast and rejoice. And those themes sort of come together, so it seemed fitting. And so last week, if you'll remember, as we looked at the issue of work, we, we realized that work is good. Work is not only good, and predates the fall. God had work for the man and the woman to do before sin. Work is also holy. That because God has called us to um, glorify him in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, work is holy. But well, see, there's another principle that extends. Everything is holy. There is, in fact, no legitimate sacred secular dichotomy. There's no, there's no legitimate, these are God's things, these are my things. These are the holy things, these are the common things. That's, that's done away with. Work is required, and then we saw that work is not God. Work is subordinate. That as much as work is important, we'll see this week, rest is also a crucial biblical theme. Rest is a crucial biblical thing. I want to begin by asking some questions maybe you've never considered. If the scriptures call us to worship God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all our mind, and everything we do, whether we eat or drink, to do unto the Lord... That means everything. So here's a question. How do you watch TV to the glory of God? Ever thought about that? How do you watch a football game to the glory of God? How do you go on vacation to the glory of God? Can you do these things to the glory of God? See, the danger is if we have this sacred secular dichotomy, then there's God's things and there's my things. And surely if anything's my thing, it's the things I just listed. I don't think so. God is the Lord of all. So then the next question, is there biblically a place for rest, for refreshment, for leisure? Is it ever right to do that? I know that you can read some books, you can see people who are so worked up, so on fire, that you can have a little voice in the back of your mind. If I was, if I was a really serious Christian, there are people dying and going to hell, there are people starving, there are refugees who are homeless. There's so much going on in the world that needs help. If I was a serious Christian, I wouldn't be watching this television program right now. I'd be up there doing something about it. You ever, you ever feel that way? You ever, you ever suspect that if you really were doing what God wanted you to do, there wouldn't be any of that? You'd just sort of be 24 hours a day going, 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 going. So how do we work through that? And the right answer is not to ignore it. I think usually um, I talk to people, they just don't want to go here because they suspect that if we go here, then all the TV and all the sports and all of the leisure is going to be gone. I don't think that's what God's Word says. And so I'd like to study this morning a ooh, theology 
of rest. I don't usually use PowerPoint, but because there are so many passages that we're going to look at, I thought it'd be helpful to put them up on the screen. So you can follow along through the bulletin if you'd like. If you want an advance notice, I am going to ask that we all sort of open up eventually to Psalm 95 and then to Hebrews 3 and 4. So if you want to get ready, we won't be there for a bit. We are eventually going to look at Psalm 95 in particular and Hebrews 3 and 4 in particular in depth. But we will not be starting there. We'll not be starting there. So theology of rest. And remember, theology simply is the word that we use, theos, God, knowledge of God. How does rest relate to the knowledge of God? What do we know about God, and how does what we know about God inform what we know about rest? Or another way of saying it is, what does Scripture teach about rest? And we're going to study this in two points. First, we're going to track the development of rest in Scripture, and then we're going to try to understand the place of rest in our lives. We're going to track the the theme of rest, the development of rest in Scripture, and then we are going to understand the place of rest in our lives. And the reason we have to do it in this order is this. There are some things in Scripture that God develops, that God adds content to. You see probably this clearly in the notion of temple, where first, think about this, think about the development. Moses first meets with God in a tent. It's the tent of meeting. This is where God and man meet and sin is dealt with. And then the tent of meeting becomes the tabernacle. It gets developed. This is, again, where man and God meet and sin is dealt with. And eventually, the tabernacle becomes the temple, Solomon's temple. And the Shekinah glory of God comes visibly so that it can be seen that this is where man and God meet. This is where the sacrifice is. This is where sin is dealt with. And then, many hundreds of years later, Jesus comes along and says, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. Well, how, how is Jesus the temple? Because Jesus is where man and God meet and sin is dealt with. And then you go on to Paul And you see that the church, both corporately and individually, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, speaking of all of us, says we, plural, are the temple of God. And individually, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a temple. How is that the case? Because Jesus is in heaven, and we remain on earth as the mediators where man and God meet and sin is dealt with, bringing the gospel to the nations. And ultimately, the story of the Bible ends in Revelation 21, The new creation, where there is no temple. Why? There is no sin to be dealt with. And the text explicitly says, for God is with his people. In a sense, the entire new creation is a temple. Now, you you, you can't get that without seeing the movement. You can't get that trajectory without starting all the way back in Genesis and moving forward. Rest is one of those themes. Rest is one of those things that gets developed. And later, Scripture develops it further and develops it further and develops it further. And so if we're to understand rest... We need to understand that rest is a core biblical concept and theme. And it's introduced in the creation account, developed throughout the rest of the unfolding narrative of Scripture. Therefore, to understand the significance of rest, we must first attempt to track some of this biblical development. Okay? So that's what we're going to try to do. We're trying to track the development of rest in Scripture. I'm sure just about all of you are aware of where it starts. Where, where rest starts. Starts with God giving us the pattern of rest. And that's the first blank. Rest as a pattern. Rest as a pattern. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And the, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested 
on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Now what on earth is going on here? Does God get tired? Is God worn out? He's had a busy week? No. No, emphatically no. Isaiah 40, 28 to 29. Oh. Sec, what just happened? Uh-huh. There's Genesis. There's Isaiah 40. Okay. Isaiah 40, 28 to 29. I'll get the hang of this eventually. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, and rather than God becoming weary, he's the one who gives power to the faint. God has an excess of power and strength. He has strength available for the weak. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Now, I think what God is doing is not resting because he's tuckered out, but giving us a pattern. He's establishing something. He is starting something. This is the first point in our trajectory of rest. Because you know this, in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments come, and God commands the Sabbath. And by the way, Sabbath just means Hebrew for rest. just means rest. The basis for the Sabbath command, the day of rest, is God's own rest. Exodus 28 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Do you get this? God did something. God set a pattern. And then he invites He commands his people to imitate him, to follow suit. We are made in God's image, and one of the ways his people are going to reflect God's image, they're going to rest too. So God sets up this pattern of rest, and that becomes the basis for the day of rest. Now, so far, I'm probably not laying any new ground. But one of the things that was clear to the Israelites, and I think is less clear to us, is that rest doesn't stop there. The next big step in the development of rest, it even picks up in Exodus, is the land of rest. Now again, since we don't live in Palestine, we we can miss this. Remember, Israel leaves Egypt and they wander around in the wilderness. They are homeless, they are sojourners, they're pitching tents and they're packing their tents up and then they're pitching tents. They don't have a home. Forty years, it's weary, it's tiresome, they're in the wilderness. And so at Sinai, rest is promised, and it's connected with the land. Exodus 20, 33, 13 to 14, Moses is just pleaded for Israel after they've worshipped the golden calf. Moses says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. And he, the Lord, said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Okay? It becomes a bit more explicit. 
Deuteronomy 12. These are Moses' farewell addresses. The, the wilderness wanderings are over. They're on the far side of the Jordan. Moses is about to die. Joshua is about to lead the people in. And Moses, in preparing the people, in restating the law covenant, says this. You have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you will live in safety. And does this picture of rest make sense? It's the land. You've been wandering, and you've been wandering. An entire generation has just been wandering and died. No homes. No rest. And God's promising them a land. It's his land. And he's going to bring them into this land, and he's going to give them rest. They will come to rest. And we see also, as rest gets developed further, it's a picture also of security and safety. You could be in the land, but not until you're in the land and your enemies are dealt with can you truly be at rest. And in that sense, the biblical theme of rest is very close, very akin to the Hebrew concept, the biblical concept of peace, shalom. It's well-being. It's, it's, it's confidence, it's not being anxious, it's, it's being at rest. They're very similar. More passages linking the promise of rest with the land. Deuteronomy 25, 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies and around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And, and even as they begin the conquest of Canaan, even as Joshua leads the people in, what does he do? He reminds them of these promises. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Now again, we, we can miss this step. The Jews did not miss this step. They understood the land as rest. We finally have a homeland. We finally have a place that is our own. We finally are no longer wandering about as strangers and aliens, but we have a home and we have rest and our enemies are, are subdued and we can rest. It's promised, but not only is rest promised, but the scriptures go on to reveal that God actually gives it to them. In Joshua eleven twenty three. so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. Do you see how even the notion of rest extends not just to the people, but the land itself? This is a land of rest. This is one of the reasons why God commands they give the, the land a Sabbath rest, where they don't sow. This is a land of rest. The land will have rest, but even most explicitly, Joshua 21, 44 to 45, summing up the book of Joshua, the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers not one of their enemies had withstood them for the lord had given all their enemies into their hands not one word of all the good promises that the lord had made to the house of israel had failed all came to pass rest is promised rest is given and for many of the jews of jesus day and even those people reading the book of hebrews this was the end of the rest Here's the fulfillment. A kingdom was promised, and land was given. Rest is complete. But as we see when we look at Hebrews 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews 3 and 4 makes this point that we're going to look at. It's rather significant that even after statements that rest has been given, it all came to pass. 
an offer of rest is still put on the table. In other words, the Bible doesn't treat this as the termination of this thread, of this theme. Rest is given, but rest is still offered. Now, in the passage in 2 Samuel where David receives the Davidic covenant, the initiation of it is David realizing that he has come to rest. Now, when the king lived in the house, in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. So the, the passage with the Davidic covenant begins with David realizing God has kept his word. He is at rest. He's in the land. His enemies are subdued. And then he looks at the ark of the covenant. It hasn't come to rest. It's in a tent. That, that's the idea. He, he, he wants to help the ark come to rest. We, we know that from other passages. Listen to Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? No, David is understanding rightly. God has given me rest. I, I want to build a house for him. I want to let the ark have a home. But God, 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 as much as he's pleased with David's desire because of the bloodshed on his hands, says no. Rather, a little later, in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 12, I will give you rest. I will give you, but wait, I thought David has rest. Well, he does, but he doesn't have the fullness of rest. God's promising him a future rest. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and he will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And linking with the Davidic promise of a coming Davidic Messiah, a, a king par excellence who would reign forever. Linking with that is the promise of rest. It's the promise of rest. You get the idea. Rest is still being offered, even to a man who has rest. Okay, now turn to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. And this is really the passage that the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews spends two entire chapters dealing with two or three verses from Psalm 95. So I just want to take a quick look at Psalm 95. It begins with a standard call to worship, corporate worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And we, we, we write songs based on that. It's good. That's not the main point of this psalm. The psalm follows this pattern, an invitation to worship, regions to worship. Why should we worship God? He's good. He's the creator. He shepherds us. And then the psalm makes a turn. Ultimately, we learn that Psalm 95 is a warning. It's a warning. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, when your fathers put me to the test, when they put me to the reproof, though they'd seen my works. What he's talking about is all the grumbling of Israel in the wilderness. 
Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you had to take us out into the wilderness to die? We're so tired of manna. We need meat or quail. (sighs) If only we were back in Egypt when we could eat meat from a pot and there were leeks. And grumbling, complaining, they put God to the test. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Implicitly, the psalmist is saying, don't make the same mistake. You too have the offer of entering God's rest. Don't make the mistake. Beware, beware. So he calls him to worship. And the fear is this. Some, some of you, some of us may hear this call to worship and say, I don't want to worship the Lord. I don't want to sing. I don't want to rejoice. We harden our hearts. We grumble. We complain. You know, I'll, I'll worship God when he, when he gives me that raise. I'll worship God when he, he gives me the things that I want. I, I got a bone to pick with God. And so the call to corporate worship is followed by the warning, beware, beware, lest you imitate Israel in the wilderness. So that's, that's the point of Psalm 95. And the key point here is this. After, so many years after entering to the land, rest is still being offered. Rest is still being offered. Now, this brings us to our final point in the first half here. We've seen that rest is first given as a pattern. And rest then becomes a special day. And then rest is the land. Ultimately, all of this we'll see from the New Testament is pointing to the gospel of rest. The gospel offer of rest. It doesn't terminate with the land. It goes so much further. It goes so very much further. In fact, our study of rest started in in Genesis. But if you go all the way to Revelation, you don't need to turn there, but do you realize that heaven and hell the eternal state of all men, one of two ultimate destinations, can be biblically and meaningfully described in terms of rest. Get this. Revelation 14, 11, describing those who worship the beast, those who are tormented, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Hell is the place of no rest. Zero rest. Conversely, a few verses later, Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Ultimately, there are two types of people in this world, those who in the eschaton, those who in the life to come will have rest, and those who will have no rest. It's ultimately how it boils down. This, I think, helps make some sense of Jesus' offer to give rest to the weary soul. If rest is more than a day, if rest is more than a pattern, if rest is more than the land, then I think it helps us make sense of what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, Take take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, Jesus is offering rest. He's not offering the rest of a day. 
He's not even in, uh, primarily offering the land, although I do think ultimately we will most perfectly live this out in the kingdom. But he's offering a rest for the soul, a spiritual rest. You know, we, we can show up and we can feel the weight of our conscience. We can feel the weight of our sin. We can feel the weight of the law bearing down on us. Others we've disappointed. We can, we can feel the weight of fear of God's wrath and anger. You're not, you're not resting when you're bearing up underneath all those burdens. And Jesus says, if you're heavy laden, if, you're, if your sins are weighing you down, we, we, we sang laden with guilt and full of fear. Jesus says, come to me, come to me. I'll give your souls rest. Take my yoke upon you. So if the gospel ultimately is, is what rest is pointing to, then I think it's most significant to see, and here we are in Hebrews chapter 3. If you turn to Hebrews 3, please. God invites us to enter his rest. Now, we're actually going to look at Hebrews backwards. We're first going to look at 4, then 3, but I want to show you, I want to show you that Hebrews 3 and 4 really is one big extended commentary discussion about Psalm 95. You see it clearly in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then we get an extended quote of the second half of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's a quotation. And then his initial if you were to sort of do the author of Hebrews bullet points, his point one would be today. And so he spends a bit of time discussing that. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 15, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then he goes to speak about that rebellion. The psalm warns us not to imitate what Israel did, so now he's going to look at that. For, those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now here's the point the author of Hebrews is making. He's writing to a bunch of Christians. He calls them brothers, and yet throughout the book, he repeatedly expresses his concerns for where they're at with the Lord. He's concerned they might return to Judaism. He's, he's concerned they might forsake the Lord. And so he reminds them, brothers, sisters, remember, there's a generation of our fathers and mothers who appeared to have a salvation-like experience. They were, they were released from slavery in Egypt. And God, through a mighty deliverance and salvation, through the blood of the Passover lamb, delivered them and redeemed them. And they went to Sinai, and they entered into a covenant with God. And they became his people. And they all died in the wilderness and never entered his rest. Beware. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing with this. They appeared to have a salvation. They were given the promise of peace. The same words that were spoken to us have been spoken to them. These promises, beware, because they, they perished in the wilderness. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. So now we'll pick it up in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
You see, he's concerned maybe some of his audience will prove to be like Israel in the wilderness. They never truly came to faith. He's not, he's not concerned they're going to lose their salvation. He's just concerned that there's some people in the congregation he's writing to that think they're Christians, but ultimately prove they're not. For good news came to us just as to them. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now get this. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest, although from his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. By the way, if you ever have a hard time remembering a Bible reference, you're in good company. It's somewhere written. How do you not remember Genesis? That's what I want to know. How do you not remember? I'd, I'd encourage you, save your it's somewhere written for like a minor prophet or something, but, but he's going to use, he's going to spend his it's somewhere written for Genesis. Okay. Um, for it is somewhere written, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again, in this passage, he said, they shall never Enter my rest. Now get this. He is doing what we did already. He is tying together. He's, he, the author of Hebrews has gone back to Genesis 2. And he's tying all this together. This is where I, I, we know that, yes, this is meant to be understood as a trajectory. Things are being built. Things are headed somewhere. God set something in motion back in Genesis 2. And now he said already, it remains for us to enter God's rest becomes more explicit in the next passage. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, which he also, at the end of chapter 3, called their disobedience unbelief, because we always live out what we believe, don't we? We always do. They are unable to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today! saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And here's the key. Get this. For if Joshua had given them rest, if the fullness of rest came in the conquest of Canaan, if Joshua had given them the full rest, that is, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Do you get that? The ultimate Sabbath, the ultimate rest that all of this is pointing towards is our rest in Christ and the gospel. That that's the final and ultimate rest. Oh, there we go, underlined. This is why we are not under a command to set aside one day in seven for rest. You know that. The Christians, or some of you here, will leave this morning and go to work. First of all, today is not the Sabbath. Yesterday was. Secondly, the fullness, the Sabbath rest of God is in Christ. And just as the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Christ, and we don't sacrifice goats anymore and bulls, so the Sabbath command is fulfilled in Christ, and we are not under that obligation. Now, let, let me say, we as a people need rest, and there's been countries that have tried to integrate a seven-day work week, and they quickly learned that people who work six days and rest one produce more in those six days than people who work seven. There's a wisdom in God's pattern for rest. 
We're not under a law. We're not under a command. Paul explicitly says in Colossians 2, let no one judge you in regards to a moon or a festival or a Sabbath. The fullness is in Christ. The fullness is in Christ. What God was doing when he set a pattern in in Genesis and then invites, calls his people to enter into it, he's creating a rest to invite us into it. Notice that as well. It's his rest. God invites us to enter into his rest. I've rested, God says, come rest with me. I will give you rest. Rest is God's to give. And ultimately, all of this is set up for the gospel that offers rest. Now, what does this mean practically for us? And we've got to move quickly. We've got about 10 or 15 minutes. We'll move quickly. Practical application then. How, how do I live in light of this? Practical application. Theology of rest. We've seen tracking the development of rest through scriptures. We've done that briefly. Now we're going to understand the place of rest in our lives place of rest in our lives. First point is this. First application is this. Enter into God's rest in Christ. And it seems kind of obvious, but sometimes we can make the mistake of missing the obvious. Enter, you, you, me, enter into God's rest in Christ. Or become a Christian. Or believe in Jesus. Or get saved. Or be converted. Or whatever biblical metaphor you want to speak. But that's, that's the immediate Immediate application given by the author of Hebrews. He says, again, he has pointed a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he's saying this psalm written so long ago, the Holy Spirit's still saying, he's saying to you, he's saying to me, don't harden your hearts when you hear his voice. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as he did from his. And then here's the application, the exhortation, let us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The most immediate application of this is, friend, God has a rest that he is offering you. He knows that you're weary. He knows that you can't bear the weight of your sin. He knows you cannot bear the weight of the law and your conscience. He knows that. And God, who doesn't need rest, has created a rest that he invites you into freely. What this means then is today, while it's called today, when you hear his voice in the gospel, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Now, that picture of hardening, what does that liken us back to? Who's the first person in the Bible we're told hardened his heart? Pharaoh. God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God said, let my people go, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. A corollary picture is that of the ox or the mule stiffening its neck. Sometimes God calls Israel a stiff-necked people. The idea is this. It's resisting something. It's clear to see with the mule. The person with the reins wants them to turn Right. Mule stiffens his neck. I'm not turning right. Pharaoh hardens his heart. I'm not going to let the people go. Don't harden your heart when you hear God's voice in the gospel. Don't harden your heart. Repent and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where, where do I get repent from? What's the opposite of hardening your heart and resisting? Relent. Yield. Change your disposition and your will. Embrace and not resist God. And believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. In Luke, he's celebrating at Christmas. He's coming into the world. Fully God, fully man. He does for you what you cannot do. He bears the weight that we feel crushed by. 
And he bore it fully on the cross. He bore our sins. He bore your sins, my sins. And he died, executed by God, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He rose on the third day, vindicating that he is the holy and righteous Son of God. And now he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. I'll I'll take your burden of sin. I'll take your your burden of guilt. I'll be your righteousness. I'll be your satisfaction. Stop, Stop trying to work to earn God's forgiveness and favor. You know, we're hardwired to do that, right? We're hardwired to want to work for our salvation. That's why just what every other religion in the world is a works-based righteousness. You do these things, you perform these rites, take part in these rituals, do these good deeds, and you will be saved. And God says, no, enter my rest. Enter my rest by faith. Rest from the demands of the law and the threat of punishment. Second point, you've got to enter. And if you're, you're not a Christian here today, today... Today's the day of salvation. Today, you can hear God's voice in the gospel and not harden your heart. Secondly, though, you need to abide. Abide in God's rest in Christ. And this actually is more of the immediate application of the author of Hebrews. He's calling them to persevere. He's call, he, they had an initial profession of faith. He's much more writing to continue them in the faith, to, to press them along. And this is where we go back a little bit to chapter 3 and the exhortation there. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So what's the danger? Unbelief. Leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the solution? Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. You get the link to Psalm 95? It's still called today, I think. I checked my calendar this morning, and guess what? It's today. Tomorrow will be today as well, but not till tomorrow. Now today is today. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. What does this mean? And he says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. But as it is said today, you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. It means, you get this, each and every today is a new opportunity for you and for me to hear God's word and to respond in faith with a soft heart. That means if you, if you royally messed up yesterday, if yesterday you were unfaithful to the Lord, if yesterday you sinned grievously, you've confessed it, today is a new opportunity for you to hear and respond in faith. Conversely, today is a new opportunity for you to fall away, for, you to, for your heart to harden, for you to drift away from the living God each and every day. This is why Christian Bible reading has so often generated the daily pattern of reading the word because they understood that every day is a day to hear God's voice. Every day is a day to hear God's voice and not harden your heart. This also means that we can daily encourage one another to be encouraged and to hear his voice. John Flavel, in his book, Keeping the Heart, says one of the chief tasks of the Christian is to keep his heart fixed on God. Another way to say it is to keep his heart from ever hardening, but to keep it soft and faithful in loving Christ. So those are the two primary applications. Be a Christian. Enter into God's rest. Stay in God's rest. What else? And now I want to transition from from the most primary application of salvation to then what do we do with We started by asking questions, television, we're going to get there. We're going to get there now. We're going to transition now to our daily need of rest. 
the shadows still remain. You know, one of the ways that you can know that you're not God is every, you know, 16 hours or so, you need to lie down unconscious, prone, and helpless. That's one of the ways you and I daily get reminded. In case you start thinking you're God, at some point in the next 20 hours or so, you will lie down unconscious and helpless and prone because you're not God. And God gave us these reminders to point us to, we're not God and we need something from him. And we get weary in our work. And under the curse, work is toilsome and we need refreshing. And we've seen ultimately where this points us to is the gospel. So let's not miss that. But we, at the end of the day, Pastor Jeremy, can I watch TV? <laughs> can I watch a football game? Can I play a board game? Or is it just work, 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 work? Well, here's the glorious answer. No, refreshment and rest is good. But here's, here's my principles. We'll move quickly. First, seek. There we go. Seek your refreshment firstly in the Lord. And I'll, I must admit up front, I was talking to my wife this morning, and she was warning me lest I sound more righteous than I am. This is probably something that I, that I not probably, this is definitely something I need to work on. And it's been convicting this week. Um, it's been convicting understanding that again and again in scriptures what we see is when God's people are weary, when God's people are tired, they turn to him for their refreshment. They turn to him for their strength. And it's so tempting to turn to the TV, to turn to the computer, to turn to the game, to turn to whatever it is that we're to find rest in apart from God. And that's idolatry. God did not ultimately make these things to provide us the rest that we need in him. Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or Psalm 63.1-3, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. You understand when you're weary and when you're tired. Again and again, the scripture puts the living God forward as the one who refreshes, the one who satisfies. And it's counterintuitive, because I can see the TV, I can touch the TV and the remote. And we've got to remind ourselves, Let's, let's first turn, I, I think what this looks like, and on my best days, and my wife was warning me not to say it, unless you think there's a lot of those best days, um, but on my best days, on our best days, it looks something like this, we're tired, what do you want to do tonight? Why don't we spend some time in the Word and in prayer? Let's seek our, let's seek our refreshment from the Lord, and then, if it seems good to us, we'll go watch some TV, we'll do something. I'm not saying seek your rest only in the Lord. He's given, we'll see, he's given us this world. He's given us these good things to enjoy. But, but whenever we take a good thing and raise it to an ultimate thing, we make an idol out of it. So we find our rest from God. And we find our rest in God's word. Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses, again, writing to Israel, telling them that he humbled you, the Lord humbled you, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes to the mouth of the Lord. Yes, we need food. We need refreshment from food and drink. And that's meant to point us to the knowledge that the real spiritual refreshment comes from God's word. 
Jesus is the bread of life come down from heaven. We need the Lord. We need his word for true refreshment. We start there. Start there. Second, oh, 1 Peter 2, 2 to 3. Skipped over that. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So first, seek your refreshment firstly in the Lord. Next, ask for wisdom. If you're hoping that I'd give you how many hours of TV can I watch or how many football games can I watch or how many video games can I play or how much mindless surfing on the internet can I do, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have a number. I suspect if you're an American, it's, you're probably doing it too much. But, but the real issue is we need wisdom. The author of Ecclesiastes says this, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you judgment. See, if we just live carelessly, if we just live doing what we want to do, oh, I want to watch TV now, oh, I want to go over here now, and we're not living purposefully, we certainly won't be doing everything to the glory of God. And get this, you never accidentally glorify God. It's never accidental. I mean, I've never heard someone say, you know, yesterday I was just going about my business, I was thinking about all these things, and before I knew it, I was glorifying God. Now, glorifying God's intentional. It takes an act of the will. It's purposeful. And if we live our lives and we, we pick up the remote purely with a, what pleases me? What will give me pleasure? We're picking up as idolaters. We're not picking up as servants of God. We need wisdom. We need to understand that we need wisdom to, to portion these things out. Now, in Psalm 80, the only psalm in the Psalter that Moses wrote, he writes this, and he focuses on the hardness of our life, the toil of our life, the briefness of our life. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that concept of number, the Hebrew behind it, is really make divisions. What Moses is saying is given how difficult life is, and given how short life is, and given how frail we are, we need wisdom to know how to divide up our time and our days. I need wisdom to know how much time to put into sermon prep and how much time to spend with my kids and how much time to spend with other people and how much time to spend in rest. And understand that from the very beginning, God meant for us to rest. It's a good thing to rest. And if you offer it up to God, he'll give you the wisdom. And the answer won't be no rest for you, just work, 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 work. Now, it might be less rest than you want. I doubt the Lord's going to say, five hours of television a day, that's your allotment of rest. But anything else other than that goes back to that sacred-secular dichotomy, which is false. This is the Lord's, this is mine. This is the Lord's, and I do the Lord's things, and I help out in Awana, and I go to church, but this is mine. Offer it up to the Lord. Lord, how much television consumption is fitting for refreshment, for leisure? That's how you, that's how you watch TV to the glory of God. That's how you watch a game to the glory of God in faith. Because you've offered it up to God and you're, you're first seeking your rest in him. Because finally, and this is, this is the great last point and it sets up beautifully for our Thanksgiving Day feast after you ask God for wisdom is enjoy God's creation with thanksgiving. 
This is good news. I want you to come tonight to our feast and enjoy it. And I want you to come with a clean conscience, not feeling like, aren't we kind of being lazy because we're not doing a small group? I mean, if we were really holy and righteous, wouldn't we be doing small? No. Come and rest. Come and feast. Come and enjoy. Listen to some of these wonderful passages. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 to 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them that they be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. The pattern of toil and rest. Take pleasure in it. Enjoy it. Or Paul in 1 Timothy 4. Everything is created by God as good, and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Your television watching is made holy by the word of God, and you're lifting it up to him in prayer. That's, that's how you do that in faith. Our, our feasting tonight is made holy by the word of God and our thanksgiving prayer for it. Or 1 Timothy 6, 17, last passage. It's talking about the rich. Charge them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God's richly provides you. It's okay to enjoy God's creation. It's okay to take a vacation and enjoy. You've got to do it in a context where you're asking God for wisdom, and you're not serving pleasure as a God, but you know the responsibilities you have. So next, so next time your conscience bothers you because you're taking a day off, you've got a day off from work and you're doing something with your family, you're taking some rest and you think in the back of your mind, you know, if I was really a non-fire Christian, I'd be knocking on doors right now. Remind yourself, no, you're not God. And God apportions rest to you. He wants you, he plans, he purposes you to rest. Now, you can take too much of it and you can be self-indulgent. And Paul says in 1 Timothy, those who are self-indulgent and idle that's not a good thing. We saw that last week. But a prayerful, offered up to God portion of rest and relaxation is a good thing. And, and God wants us to enjoy it. You're not God. You need rest. It's okay. It's good. Well, let's, let's praise the Lord that he's given us this rest. Let's, let's make sure we enter into it. And let us offer up all of our lives, not just some of it to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you. Even though you need no rest... You took the initiative. You, you took a rest that you then invite us to enter into. And so, Lord, it's my prayer here that we would all enter into your rest. For those of us who are in your rest, we would continue to abide in your rest and that we would offer up all of our lives, our work and our play to you and that you would give us the wisdom to know how to make divisions in our life and span. Lord God, we, we are so blessed, so blessed to be your children so blessed to receive these great and mighty promises from you. And Lord, as we gather again tonight to, to worship and rejoice, we thank you for bringing us, calling us into your rest in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.